Welcome to this episode of the Atlanta Career Journey Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Dale Lawson, who is an emergency medical physician at Phoebe Sumter Medical Center, which is based in America's Georgia. I've had the privilege of knowing Dr. Lawson for over 30 years, and she's one of the most amazing humans that I know. We met at Georgia Tech through the Alpha Kappa Psi Business Fraternity, and I saw back then how multifaceted she is. Incredibly smart, tireless worker, great athlete. She's become an excellent wife and mother, and just a genuinely good person. So also, fun fact, in 1988, Dale became only the second female driver selected to drive Georgia Tech's Ramblin' Rec car as part of the Ramblin' Rec Club. She graduated with a business degree and worked in the telecom industry for several years before engineering a major career pivot. She's on my short list of guests when I first created this podcast, and I'm so glad she's here today. So welcome to the podcast, Dale. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. So like I said, you were, you were one of the ones I was thinking about when I put this podcast together, just because you know, as I've mentored kids over the years, high school and college, I call them kids, but they're adults. Um, they really have not quite sure what they want to do with their life. And I know I didn't when I was in high school or college, I sort of knew what I didn't want to do. But um, you and I've talked over the years just about things we're interested in and things we, you know, started in and then how we wanted to kind of change things a little bit. So I thought this would be a great conversation today. So let's, let's maybe start, you know, early on. So tell me a little bit about your background. Where'd you grow up? Okay. Yeah, so I grew up in a really small town in South Georgia and grew up on a farm. My dad was a farmer. My mom was basically a teacher and stayed at home some. I have two older sisters um, and uh, I just kind of loved that country life. I rode horses. I showed pigs, you know, all the crazy stuff you do on the farm. I fished constantly. Um, it was just kind of a, <laughs> it was a really fun, uh, pretty great childhood, actually. And so for a lot of us, myself included, that just don't know what goes on with a farm, it's, it's a ton of hard work, right? I mean, you, you're kind of at the mercy of the elements sometimes. You've got to really do a good job of planning and sort of contingency planning if things happen. And then you've got, if you're, if you're dealing with animals, that's different than if you're dealing with crops as well. So um, did you learn some of your initial kind of characteristics of hard work back then? Yeah, I, I guess so. I certainly saw my dad work very, very hard on the farm. And, you know, I saw his constant concern about the weather, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Some things you don't, you aren't able to control, but you still have to worry about some. Um, and the one piece of advice he gave me as I got older, and, and basically growing up on a farm, you're, you're like free labor, right? You know, it's amazing. <laughs> my parents didn't have 20 kids, but. Uh, it's usually <laughs> how it worked in the back in the day, right? You, you couldn't afford to have a small family. <laughs> no, exactly. My dad was one of nine kids and they, they all, he was towards the end of the crowd. And so they all very conveniently snuck away to college and including my dad, um, who got yeah. kind of sucked back into the farm life, but. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it is a, a really hard, you know, I think a challenging career, especially for the small farmer, you know, as big industrial farms have kind of become the only economical, you know, viable option in farming, I think. Um, mm-hmm. So you mentioned, cause I remember that story about, um, ha- having a show pig or whatever, what, what, uh, drove <laughs> you to do some, some of those, those types of adventures? <laughs> Well, you, you know, there there aren't any Starbucks in South, you know, rural <laughs> South Georgia, so your options are kind of limited. Um, right. You know, uh, 4-H is a really big thing there. And, okay. And I did enjoy that greatly growing up um, because it did offer a lot of opportunities to do just a, a number of different things. Public speaking, for one, you know, which I thought was really great. Um, mm-hmm. There's a real focus on that uh, now in terms of learning to present yourself and present your interests, but... Yeah, there's a bunch of other stuff involved that kind of is a more of a rural nature, like forestry, which I was involved with. And um, I always loved animals. So, you know, any kind of show the cow, show the pig, you know, raise the pigs, you know, just anything I could get my hands on that would be a fun activity I sort of jumped into. So. Yeah. So it really was just like something struck your interest. You decided to just go for it and let's just learn, you know, what it's about and, and how to be successful in it. That's uh, great life lessons. I know that um, somebody else I talked to was involved in pageants. Uh, like, you know, oh, yeah. Um, yeah and, and she said uh-huh. the same thing. It was like on the, on the surface, it seems kind of silly, but you're really learning some life lessons early around, you know, 
selling either yourself or selling, you know, in your case, a pig or whatever um, in the public speaking and all the things that go into that. And so it's, it's valuable lessons, even if it's not necessarily apparent, you know, um, from the outset. So 4-H Club, very active in that one. What else were you doing in high school? Um, were there certain subjects you liked or were there sports you played? Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I always sort of had a bend toward the sciences. I always loved math. I wasn't the most talented math student, but I, I always loved that subject. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoyed history a lot. Um, uh, let me think. Yeah. So academically, you know, I did debate and as much as the literary um, offerings that were available at a, at a small public public high school. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as far as sports went, you know, back to there wasn't a lot to do. So basically every season that came around, you know, sign me up. <laughs> My mom had to roll her eyes because she knew that meant driving, you know, here and there, you know, to various practices. <laughs> but yeah. I guess the other option was me being in a lot of trouble. So that seemed like a better option to my parents. <laughs> Kids that are busy have less time to get into trouble as we've come to find <laughs> as parents. Yeah. Right. If you have a high energy kid that you should definitely make sure they're busy. I think that's the bottom line on that. For sure. Yeah. yeah. That's so awesome. Pretty much anything. Baseball. I played little league. I uh, played one year of high school baseball. That was kind of freaky because uh, I, I had always done really well in, in little league, but you know, by the time you get to high school, the guys are a lot bigger and stronger. And so mm -hmm. uh, I only did that for a year. But uh, basketball, always been involved in track and cross country and tennis, those kind of things. So sports has, has always been a big thing for me. I really enjoyed sports. Yeah. And there's certainly life lessons that you pick up, you know, on a court or on a field, working with a team or even individually, depending on the sport. So um, and you probably picked up lessons from each because baseball, you know, or basketball or even track, you've got teammates that you rely on and you depend on and they can kind of motivate you or, you know, inspire you. And, and then you've got an individual sport um, where you're running track on your own or even tennis if you're playing singles. It's sort of like you against the world, but you rely on some things, you know, you learn from your coach, et cetera. But sounds like you got a really, a really good variety of, of influences from your high school career. Were you... Um, yeah. The teamwork so, is, is key. You know, you really, you learn to get along with people that you may or may not have been friends with prior to, you know, being thrown into this common um, activity or event. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's definitely great life lessons. Well, and sometimes when you get thrown into the fire, if you will, you know, whether it's on a team, just at playing, you know, a season or whatever, you can, may not, may not like a person or didn't know somebody, but you sort of get that, um, that collective gel when you go through something together that you become teammates that bond becomes a little bit stronger and sometimes that's a becomes a you know a lifelong friendship that you know doesn't ever go away just from that that one the one period of time in your life so those are always those are always good i i enjoyed sports i was not very good at them but um it didn't stop me anyway but uh it was yeah i, I do always appreciate the lessons that you can learn from sports and how that comes you know full circle into your schoolwork or into your professional life were you, um, so in high school, were you starting to think about college? It sounds like you were doing a lot of different things. Were you thinking about maybe life on the farm or staying in South Georgia or what, what was your thinking then? Well, yeah, two, two things on that. You know, my, my dad, I, as I told you, I was like free labor on the farm. So we have a very small farm. He and I spent a lot of time together because my older sisters had, you know, flown the coop by then. Um, so I heard <laughs> distinctly, we were planting pine trees one day, which was a very manual process in the day. And, you know, I was sweating and I was sick of doing it and aggravated that I was out there doing it. And my dad says, so, um, do you see yourself doing this the rest of your life? And I said, <laughs> absolutely not. And he said, well, I suggest you go to college and pay attention. And I said, Okay, <laughs> file that lesson. <laughs> you don't have to say that anymore to me. Yeah, yeah. It was kind. Of, it was an interesting era because it was unusual in that there were females around that were going into the family farming business, which that had not happened to a large extent, you know, prior to that. Um, 
but that kind of was becoming a thing. And, and my dad was probably one of the most progressive men of that generation. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with gender. I, I feel like if he had a son, he would have said the same thing. Don't you dare consider this as a career option. <laughs> <laughs> well, he probably has, you know, if he's gone to college and has come back, he's probably seen, you know, um, influences on both sides. And sometimes you want, you know, for your children to have a better life than what you had. And if he saw the struggles or some of the challenges, maybe he realized I need to need to expose my, my children to some things other than just what, what's in front of them here. Yeah. I think that's a natural parent tendency for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. All right. So definitely got the motivation to crack the books and, and move on. So were you looking to like, go far away or were you thinking to stay in state um, where there are certain, you know, financial restrictions or how'd your, how'd your school selection process go? Well, um, you know, tech was always on the radar. Um, both my grandfathers, my maternal and paternal grandfathers had gone to Georgia tech. And so um, though my paternal grandfather died before I was born, you know, there were always, always these great stories about tech floating around from, from his era, which was at the turn of the century, amazingly. Yeah. Um, and then my other grandfather, who I spent a lot, a lot of time with, um, was just this, uh, he, he was a tech guy and, you know, had a career at Georgia Power and he, he just still loved and appreciated tech. And, and I just saw, you know, he would just take the abuse in South Georgia. Everybody's a bulldog <laughs> man. But my yeah. grandfather, you know, I just, I'd go to church with him and then we'd be walking down the street and all his bulldog buddies would be harassing him. And he, he would just always find that one thread of positivity. Did you see that one long touchdown run? You know, we probably <laughs> lost the game 52 to seven, but boy, he'd be talking up that one good play. Find that silver lining, right? And that's over lining. So yeah, I, you know, stupidly, I applied to only one college. That was the only place I could see myself going. My mom made me go on this college tour for about three days with a group of kids uh, all over the state of Georgia to look at all these colleges. And I told her from the start, it was kind of a waste of her money, which was, showed you how open-minded I was not at that age. But anyway, uh, I, I Just looking out for you, mom, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went on the tour and I, and I almost decided to go to Emory just to stick it to him financially, but um, <laughs> I didn't think it'd really be worth it. Yeah. Really my heart was, my heart was at Georgia Tech. And so, you know, fortunately it worked out I, because I had only applied to Tech, but uh, that would be a dicey strategy these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I'll tell you a story about my son offline because he was, his mentality was a lot like yours in high school. So, oh, was it? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But um, so, did you think of you know Georgia Tech? You know, traditionally it's engineering. Were you thinking of going into engineering, or were you looking at other other avenues and majors there? You know, this is how naive I was. I, I don't know how you were going to college, but I, I kind of, for those reasons I mentioned, I, I picked out tech. And, and the other issue was a good many kids from my high school were going to Georgia and a lot of my friends were going to Georgia. And I just, kinda, I was always that weird kid who wanted to do something that everybody wasn't doing or mm -hmm something that in my mind was more challenging than the rest of the, you know, the rest of the kids that I was buddies with. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's kind of a strange, strange mentality. So I got to tech honestly, without really knowing a lot about what the majors meant and what I wanted to do. And um, I, I sort of, I guess I went in undecided and, and calculus sort of smacked me right in the face mm -hmm. pretty heavily. Yep. I, I got through it and, and that went okay actually, but I, I kind of, I started to think, you know, what, what do you really want to do? What do you enjoy? And I sort of just found my way over to the business program and really liked that because it was fairly technology heavy. Um, but it seemed that I would have a lot of options, I guess. Mm -hmm to do yeah. different things. Um, so I guess, I, I think that's kind of why I ended up there. Um, and that happened pretty quickly. And then I really just 
didn't look back. And, you know, now that I know uh, about what engineering is, I, I think, gosh, I would have loved environmental engineering, but I, I'm not even sure that was really a major at the time that we were there. But Yeah. I think it was pretty limited in the 80s. You know, there was the traditional routes of mechanical and aerospace and electrical and chemical, but there was, there's been lots of variations that have evolved pretty recently. Like biomedical engineering is a huge one that's become popular on campus. And I think given where you are now, I think that would have been just an amazing major for you to go into, right? So it's definitely opened up a lot um, since we were there for sure. Yeah, I think, I, I totally agree. I think yeah. So. So, yeah, so I uh, went down the management business route. Um, were you thinking of certain industries? Were there certain classes you liked in college that really resonated with you? Um, well, I, I liked the, the uh, economics classes. Um, I really liked, I liked marketing. I, you know, it, it just all made sense to me. It just all was interesting. I, I can't really think of anything I didn't like. Um, I wasn't great at, at the computer, you know, type classes. In fact, I think you probably helped me through those. And thank you. I don't think I've thanked you for that yet. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't think I helped because you ran from that industry for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I just found the whole thing fascinating. Um, I, there was nothing I didn't like, really, I guess. Mm. It's kind of a cop-out answer. I no, like. it's great. Well, uh, tell me a little bit about some of the activities, because I know you and I were, um, I know we talked a lot about exercise and workouts and diet. You were definitely into health even back then, and I was just trying to put on weight just to be at a decent <laughs> level. But um, you, uh, you wound up, I just found this fascinating, which it didn't, you know, it didn't resonate as much at the time, but I remember when, you know, I have two kids that, that recently graduated from tech, and, and one of them was like, you never told me that Dale was a driver for the wreck. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like, isn't that, I mean, it was just, you know, you, you were so humble and you downplay so much of what you achieve that I never really thought about. It's just like, yeah, she's, why wouldn't she? Right. I mean, she's amazing. <laughs> right. But um, tell me how that sort of came about that. Tell, maybe a little bit about the Ramblin' Wreck Club and what's involved in that and how you get started with that. Sure. Yeah. So I guess maybe my second or third year on campus, um, I've, you know, I was just curious, what are these guys that are sort of running around at all the sporting events and, mm -hmm. you know, and talking about tech traditions and they got these great rat caps and, you know, they, they sort of encourage freshmen to, to understand, you know, what has gone on before them. And that's, they were just always kind of the peppy, really fun looking people. So mm -hmm. I thought this, this might be something I'd like to get involved with. So I started asking questions and you know, just trying to find out how to get involved. And, and then I did, I went through the process and um, learned a lot more about tech that I didn't know. And then I guess my second year in, in rec club, that was kind of one of the neater things to do. You know, I, I, I had another office, I think I was treasurer maybe the year before, but the ultimate job of course was to be the rec driver mm -hmm. so that's that's what I set my sights on and you know part of the job was to take really great care of the wreck and um, yes I was gonna ask so you that, about that yeah that was really fascinating um I <laughs> you know of all the crazy things I took in high school I one thing I took in high school was auto mechanics right um, a whole yeah. year of auto mechanics. And that really came in handy because, you know, I wasn't a mechanical engineer tech or anything, but I did have a pretty basic understanding of auto mechanics, at least from the hands-on perspective. And so, you know, engines were so simple in that day, which is <laughs> it's just, yes. crazy, you know, yeah. so you could actually tinker with the wreck and things made sense, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. they had, Pistons. I mean, it was just so basic. And so that was another part of the job that really, um, you know, intrigued me, I guess, and, and made it an even more interesting job. Um, there were a lot of activities associated with being the direct driver, festivals and, and, you know, parties and alumni functions and weddings and mm -hmm. things like that were, that were just great. I mean, it was just so fun to be a representative of tech and, and to meet these interesting people doing really interesting things. And, um, you know, and then just caring for the wreck was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I just I, I never knew a whole lot about it, and then you know we had the wreck at our wedding, and uh, you did? we did. Yeah, so we we mistakenly got married in February, where it was you know pretty <laughs> pretty chilly, and most of our family is from Florida, so it wasn't a good mixture. But um, we climbed in the back of that rumble seat, and you know drove off anyway, and it was it was a blast. I mean, it really was pretty cool to see. You know, you see the 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 wreck at every game and, you know, some of the promotional things and occasionally around the campus driving around, but to actually be in it and to kind of, you know, talk to the driver and get their, their take on it and what they're doing is, was pretty special for us. So yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a neat experience for y'all. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, getting ready to get out of tech. Um, I know you and I talked, you know, just a little bit about the interview process, what we're looking into. And, you know, for me, it was just about getting out, getting a job. And, you know, my, my dream job at the time, which I still look back and it's really amazing, was Delta Airlines. It was, you know, growing up uh, in Atlanta, a lot of my friends in high school had parents that worked there, the travel industry and the airlines and just, uh, you know, it was kind of a frustrated pilot. And there's a lot of things that kind of connected for me where there's some industries or companies that you were looking at that uh, you thought, okay, this is going to be really great for me to do, or tell me about your thought process. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I was looking into the technology companies of the time and consulting was kind of interesting. Um, banking was interesting. I had several different opportunities in banking that I looked at and thought kind of long and hard about. And, um, Honestly, a big factor to me was, <laughs> was getting out of Georgia. I kind of wanted to try something different geographically mm-hmm. um, and ended up with, you know, a technology company um, in the Midwest. And um, I guess that's sort of how I fell into it. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a data design, you know, network and, and voice data design job with a sales uh, part to it. And so I, I kind of didn't really know that I would like the sales part so much. I wasn't sure. I never really had to sell anything. But I kind of found that interesting and a, and a pretty good fit because you still had the technical side, but then you had to really pitch it to the clients and make sure you understood what they needed and you were actually satisfying that need with the right technology. So it, it, was, it was a good fit. It was a good first job, definitely. Yeah. Yep. So you were there for, I can't remember now, so it was like five years or something like that, or was it longer? Well, I was, I was in the Midwest for three years in uh, doing this uh, sales and design part. And then I was transferred to the headquarters, which was in New Jersey. And so I spent yeah. about four years in New Jersey and New York City um, doing you know, different um, headquarters type assignments there. That's a big change from South Georgia for sure. Where they're, uh, <laughs> did did um, going to their headquarters? Did that change? Because I know working in a regional office versus a headquarters office, you the culture is different. Sometimes there's opportunities that are in one place but not the other. And so, did you find that um, to be more rewarding, or what was your thinking when you moved there? Well, I I had hoped it was going to be. Um, you know, I in retrospect. The sales and, and the technical part was a good fit because it it allowed me to to be out meeting a lot of people and to really sort of satisfy that urge to feel like I was on the cutting edge of, of technology and what was going on. When I got to headquarters, it, it seemed like a more frustrating process. Like I, I felt like, boy, you know, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to tell them everything that's wrong with their processes yeah. from the field perspective. Because you really do feel like you're on the cutting edge. You know, customers are telling me they're frustrated because we're late on our due dates. You know, all, mm-hmm. all sorts of things that you pick up from being, you know, right in front of a, a client or a customer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you, you feel like, oh, boy, I, I could go up there and really make a change. You know, obviously, they don't know what's going on, or they would right. never allow this to happen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it makes so much but, sense to me. Why don't you get it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, you're, you know, trying to change the course of the Titanic. You're uh-huh. you know, yeah. one of the largest companies in the world. You know, who am I to tell them anything, right? Yeah. So, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but I found that part very 
very frustrating that, you know, you would go to meeting after meeting after meeting and basically nothing would get done except the next meeting would get scheduled. So Yeah. Corporate inertia is really bad. And it is really bad. It is yeah. really bad. So I, I think that's where I developed a lifelong impatience and dislike for meetings, which which still exist, I guess. <laughs> So well, I, I will, very few at the hospital. Also. That's, that's great. Well, you know, it's because you can get complacent and it's sort of a, we're meeting because we've always met, right? And not really yeah. looking beyond those borders and going, is this effective? You know, are we solving yeah. a problem or looking at it just objectively and going, all right, there's 14 people in here. We make X amount per hour. So this meeting's costing us, you know, $3,000. Is it, <laughs> did we get $3,000 of value sitting around looking at each other and scheduling another meeting to talk about the same thing? So yeah. And it's, <laughs> Of course, it's not always that bad everywhere, but I think, you know, when you get to the, you know, that level and, and you're trying to move fast on something, it's it's a reason why the startups and some of the smaller competitors, that's their advantage. They're more nimble. And so it's for, for some people, it's just, it's really tough to sit around and watch that, that, that giant aircraft carrier try to make that turn around the iceberg, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That sort of did it for me. I, I sat in a conference room it, literally for over a year and, you know, every two weeks they sent me a paycheck. And so I kept doing it, but mm -hmm. and myself and, and three other people that I didn't know going in. And I mean, <laughs> speaking of friendships, I knew these people better than I did my family. I mean, yeah. I, you could have come out of there hating all three of them, but I came out of there absolutely loving all three of them uh, because we had the best time. But I mean, as far as cranking out any meaningful work, I, I just can't imagine that we did. I mean, we were on task of whatever they asked us to try yeah. out at the time, but uh, it was just, uh, <laughs> it was not very meaningful to me except the friendships that came out of it. Yeah. Well, there's some value in that too. So you start thinking about what's next for me, right? What, what do you want yeah. to do and how do you settle on your next step? Well, <laughs> so here's the, here's part of the process. And I hadn't thought about this until you sent me kind of the agenda of uh -huh. what we would talk about in, in this, this whole aha came back to me of, of when I decided, you know, this is it, I can't do this anymore. And, and what should I do? So I, I was in that, um, the conference room job. Let me just say that. I'm just going to call it the conference room job. So I'm in that job. And uh, so, so one day I get a toothache, right? So I'm like, Oh boy, I would take the day off and go to the dentist. So I did. So I get to the dentist and he's like, congratulations, you need to have a root canal. So uh, I get that scheduled. And I guess the next few days I go and I'm, I'm waiting on this root canal. Right. And so I'm sitting in this very depressing uh, dental office talking to some of their employees and they're actually pretty happy in the dental office. So yeah. I th you know what? Uh, I got to find something else to do. This, this career is not it. Um, there's possibly a job in this company I would like, but I don't know exactly what it is. And I thought these guys look pretty happy. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll be a dentist <laughs> and yeah. so, or maybe I'll be a doctor. And so that's literally where it started. And Interesting. Uh, yeah, I left there that day and I, I think I called my mom that day or the next and, and she had kind of been after me. She knew I wasn't happy. So she was like, why don't you work on your MBA or why don't you, you know, do this or that. And you know how we always ignore our parents, very good advice, which later you realize, aha, that's what I should have done. Yeah. <laughs> but yep. Um, you know, so I called her and I was like, you know what? Uh, I figured out what I'm going to do. I'm going to either go to dental school or go to medical school. And she was like, wow, where did that come from? But uh, that's literally when I made the decision. So for the next year or two, it was really figuring out how to get there. You know, I, my whole thought process about, you know, a tiddlywinks game, anything is what I want the end result to be. And then let me back up and see what the steps might look like. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just, just the thought process. So when I identified, I either want to go to dental school or medical school, I was said, okay, what would be the process? You know, I don't have all the science that I need. So, okay, there's part of the process. My husband's currently in law school. And so if I quit my job, we would have no income and we would be homeless, I suppose. So I can't quit my job. And so I started just figuring out all the logistics of, you know, how, how would I get to that point, either of those two points? 
Mm -hmm. And uh, so what that looked like for me was taking advantage of the tuition assistance program offered by this company that I was pretty sure I didn't want to work for much longer. Um, and I went back to just a local community college in New Jersey and I got all the sciences, organic chemistry and biochem and microbiology and all the stuff, anatomy and physiology that I would need for either dental school or medical school. And I, you know, took the exams for both the MCAT and the DAT for, for dental school. And I just sort of started to look around um, and try to figure out which of those two options I, you know, I would be most interested in. So one thing I did was I did a little volunteer job in New Jersey where one night a week I would go and volunteer at the local emergency room. Um, and so that would kind of come back later in, in my career as I was making a decision about what to do. That particular um, experience would come back and, and kind of give me some information that I needed. But at that point, um, I had started applying to dental schools and medical schools. And I had the opportunity to go to NYU um, for dental school. And I, we, we thought about that. Um, both Rick and I were kind of at the point where we thought the Northeast might not be our home forever. Um, mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was applying to medical schools. So I didn't, didn't get into medical school that first year. Um, and so I said, you know, I can wait another year um, or I can see what other options I have. So I started to look around and there were a choice of, you know, several different out of the country um, medical schools. Mm -hmm. So Dale, so, hang on one second on that one. So you were still trying okay. to figure, were you still trying to figure out between dental um, Avenue and Medical Avenue, or at that point you realized, okay, it seems like medical is going to be the right fit for me? Yeah, I, I guess sometime in there. Um, I, I did go visit the, the dental school at NYU, and and so there, there were some neat things about that program. Um, I, I actually had a childhood friend that was teaching at a dental program um, in Connecticut, so I, I went and spent uh, some time with him, and what he did was oral surgery, which was really kind of cool. Um, also, also one of those times where I should have maybe thought longer and harder about things. I mean, de dentists don't work a lot of, you know, weekends, so that probably yeah. would be a really nice career. But anyway, it's, at some point I, I said, you know, I, I think really medicine is it for me long term. Yeah. So... So you start looking at med schools and yeah. Uh, so yeah. so I you know I had probably pretty mediocre grades from tech and so I thought well I can I can try it again next year you know it's all a numbers game can, mm -hmm. you, can you get in or not this year kind of thing and so I I got a little nervous because I I guess I was about twenty nine already um, so I said you know I really need to get going on this if I'm going to do this. And so that was kind of the thought process of applying out of the country. Um, so, I mean, one place I really was interested in was uh, this school in Guadalajara, Mexico. So I flew down, um, spent a few days there. I, I kind of liked it, really. Uh, this is a neat campus. Um, the instruction was in English, which I, I don't speak Spanish. So that was going to be helpful. Um, and then I started looking at, at schools in the islands, and um, one of the schools that I visited, uh, a friend of a friend had gone there, and that's kind of how I got uh, turned on to that school, Ross University. So, Gotcha. Um, yeah, so I went down and, and took a look there as well, and uh, yeah, I'm like 28, 29 years old. Yeah, I'll move to Caribbean Island. You know, it sounds right. like a There's worse places to be, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the people I, t I hear you talk with, I mean, they have such a nice defined path and they've thought through so many options. And I think I've just totally flown by the seat of pants my entire life. But Well, I think it's, it's important to understand that not everybody has sort of made something. It out, yeah, not everybody figures that's, it out, that's right? That's kind of how that decision came Yeah. Because <laughs> not everybody has it figured out. I, I really out. admire those people that do, though. No, yeah. they don't, you know? And, and when you're when you're – Getting out of college, you, you just look around, you assume that everyone has it figured out more than you do. Yes. Right? Yep. I mean, didn't yep. you look around and think that? Yeah. I, I, 
I always figured. But in truth. Hey Dale, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. Had a little bit of audio issues. Yeah. When when I was um when I was at school, I I did there were things that I kind of like crossed out rather than check the box. It's like okay, I don't like uh-huh. calculus. Um, I don't like um some of the business law. I mean, there's you know, but I liked finance and I like so there were things that I liked and there were things that you know in my work job there were parts that I liked and parts that I didn't like. Um, but it was really hard to say, you know what, I'm, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a pharmacist when I, when I retire, you know, when I get out of school and that's going to be when I retire, you know, and, um, there was just, I, I never had that enlightenment moment. And I think that was, it was frustrating because I couldn't tell somebody, this is what I want to do. And you're going to do it. And I think that that puts people in advantage when you do know that, because then, you know, just the, the process you were talking about with, okay, I'm going to go to med school or dental school. So what's the end game look like? You know, as Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind, right? So you start there. Right. So if you know that goal, you can work back to figure what steps you need to. But if you don't know that end goal, you're having to just experiment. And you learn things no, about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, you learn things about yourself as you experiment. So I think it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think for some of the listeners, I don't want people to think that you have to know what you're going to do. And it's, it's bad if you don't. I think it's just a different process. And for you and I, we've had, I mean, I've had several careers in 30 years, you know, and so it's, um, but it's added up and it's made me a better person in what I'm doing now than if I just stayed in one track my entire life. And I'm sure you feel the same way, you know, now um, with all the experiences that you've had, right? Absolutely. I th- you, you draw from those experiences, even when you don't realize you're drawing from those seemingly unrelated experiences, you know, it's all, it's all about developing who you eventually develop into i guess exactly i think think it's always a work in progress though you know i guess probably you're 90 years old and you still say "Hmm, you know i wonder i'm still developing (laughs) that's right there's people that will say you know i still don't know what i want to do when i grow up (laughs) yeah absolutely i'm I'm there (laughs) yeah so you're so you're in the caribbean going through med school um you know how long were you down there so I was down there two years uh, approximately um, okay. for the clinical sciences part in, in uh, back in New York City again. That was interesting uh, for the third and fourth year. So okay. the actual, uh, so the basic sciences were, I'm sorry, the basic sciences were there on the island and then the clinical part was back in the United States, which was, which was good too. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, and, and I don't know a lot about how med school is set up, but you, do you have to then kind of decide what sort of area you want to go into or is it, if you're a resident or, um, you know, do, do you get exposed to different types of um, doctors and sort of their, their specialties? How's that work? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. So the first two years of, of medical school traditionally have been, you know, straight out of the books. You know, you, you go back and kind of do a deep dive on all the, all the sciences basically. And uh, then your second year of that you, you move into more the pathology and, you know, and actually learning about diseases and pharmacology and things like that. And so by your third year, you're actually traditionally in a hospital setting or a clinic setting, mm-hmm. going through the major specialties of medicine. And, and usually there maybe are a couple of electives you can s- select among. Um, and so for that, I was primarily in New York the whole time. I was in uh, Brooklyn and uh, I actually lived in Queens um, and had some clinical rotations there. But you go through internal medicine and surgery and psychology and, you know, family medicine and pretty much all the basics. And then your fourth year, you, you kind of get more deeply involved in the specialties, you know, neuroscience and, you know, assorted specialties. Um, and then towards the end of your, let me think about it. Towards the end of your third year, you really start to think about what, residency program or what type of specialty you would like to go into. Um, and for me, you know, I, I really wasn't sure. Um, like you said, part of life, I think, is eliminating things you really don't like. And and for me, I, I went into my OBGYN rotation thinking, golly, I mean, I'm, I'm female, you know, I, I kind of like surgery. I mean, this should be a slam dunk. I should love this. And 
and this is probably what I'll come out saying I want to go into. And I came out of that thinking if there was no other job on earth, I will not go into this field. I mean, I just really disliked that field for some reason. Huh. Um, but I was glad I, I found that. You know, yeah. Glad I figured that out. Um, then, you know, various rotations went really well. Um, but I liked family medicine. So that's eventually what I chose to do a residency in. Um, just because I like the variety of it. I actually, you know, found the specialties are, are appealing for different reasons, but the variety of family medicine was ultimately what interests me. That makes sense, actually, because I think you, you tend to get, like myself, get bored easily. If something isn't <laughs> fresh or you're not learning something, I mean, once you sort of pick that skill up, it's like, okay, what's next? Or, you know, if you got that routine, like sitting in a conference room for a year doing the same kind of stuff, it's, it's not really growing you and you don't feel like you're helping others, right? So right. That, that, that mindset makes a lot of sense, you know, in terms of just what you've dealt with in the past and, and how you've managed these rotations to go into your specialty or into your, uh, what, your residency, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Very cool. So you, um, once you finish all those, those residencies, um, you graduate, what's the, what's the process coming out of med school into um, full-time, full-time medicine? So, yeah, so you, you, you know, you finish your, uh, finish med school, which is four years, and then you complete your residency, and that's anywhere from like three to six years, depending on uh, what you go into. So for me, family medicine was, was three years, and um, I actually did that um, at a hospital in Albany, Georgia, and so I was kind of back home, and I, I said I would never come back home, but you know, my mom had, had developed cancer and uh, my parents were, were older and it really was a nice opportunity to be close to my parents one more time because I really hadn't been, you know, since college. Um, I hadn't lived anywhere near them. Um, we had our first daughter by then and, you know, it, it was great for her to get to know them and it was also logistically, they were extremely helpful Yeah, to us to with Morgan. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, finished those three years. I thought, you know, this is it. This is great. Um, we're going to move to Atlanta or we're going to move somewhere really cool. But as I started looking around at jobs, um, you know, I realized Rick, <laughs> Rick really loves this, this place. He's probably grown roots here even more so than I have. He was working for a law firm and, uh -huh. and liked the folks there, really liked the slower pace. Um, and he wasn't so keen to move back to Atlanta. Um, he had, we had lived in the suburbs and he had commuted downtown and just, you know, dealt with the traffic. And, and so he wasn't so keen to do that. And so I said, yeah, I, you know, I can look around other areas and, so I was talking to the local hospital and they were kind of telling me about what opportunities they had available and, you know, how it'd be great to come back and take care of people, you know, and, and that did sort of resonate with me that that would be neat to be able to, to take care for people I really, you know, had grown up with. Mm -hmm. um, but then they mentioned another opportunity that I really hadn't thought a lot of. And it, I guess I was in my, I was probably in my third year of residency at this point, and they said, you know, we really are, we're looking for an ER medical director too. Um, what do you think about the ER? And it was before I had even done an ER rotation. So I said, I, I don't know, let me go check it out. And so that was one of my elective um, rotations in residency. Um, I think I spent about a month in the ER and I really, really fell in love with the ER it seemed to combine, you know, some of the best of family medicine, which was the variety of things that you see with a kind of a little bit of adrenaline, you know, taking care of sometimes traumas or really sick patients or, um, you know, doing things with your hands in terms of suturing or intubating or putting in chest tubes or things like that. Yeah. So I, I guess both of those things kind of came together. Um, you know, nothing I was looking at. I was planning on being a, you know, a ver just a normal family practitioner and opening a little office somewhere. 
but then this ER thing comes along and the hospital is like, yeah, we'd love to hire you to be an ER doctor. And so I started thinking about it and the rotation went really great. And, you know, I, I said, I, I think I can do that. I really like that. And so I, I kind of, that's how I fell into ER medicine, really. Well, it's amazing how these doors can just open for you, you know, and it's not like, you know, you were watching, you know, MASH and ER and that inspired you to be this ER doctor, right? But I mean, just over the course of taking steps and ruling out things that you didn't, all of a sudden, here's a door that opened and instead of you going, nah, I'm going to be a family practitioner. And that's, that's my, that's where I'm going. You're like, you know what, let me explore this. Let me figure this out. Right. And I think that's a really important life lesson too, is like, don't, don't just say no or put some walls up. I mean, kind of explore things and see if it makes sense or if something resonates because you don't always know if you're going to like something until you actually do it, you know? That's, that's exactly right. I think being curious is, is really a good skill. Um, I, I don't know that I always have it, but it's something I've always talked with my kids about. You know, be curious. Don't just accept whatever you see or whatever your friend tells you is, is the right thing. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Just just be curious because nobody knows you like you and nobody knows your skill set like you do. So be open and, and, and be curious about opportunities. That's that's great. I mean, both of your, your children have really gone on to do some amazing things. I mean, your whole family is, is awesome, but I'm, I'm biased. But I, I think anybody that met your family would know. So um, they're all great. But I think you know, for you and I that are wired, we were just, you know, been talking about this thing about not knowing exactly what your, you know, your end goal is. But I think sometimes for me, being curious and wanting to learn has, has served me better than having, say, a passion. You know, I was always looking for what's yeah. that passion that's driving me, but I'm always asking questions. I mean, this podcast is a great example of that. And right. it's, um, you know, I think that can, that can help bridge that gap between here's where I am and not sure where I'm going to be, but asking those questions and learning along the way can help define something that you're really interested in that can then turn into a passion. Yeah, that's right, Paul. That, that is one of the first things I noticed about you when, when we became friends or first met. I, can't, I feel like I've known you my whole life, so I don't even know yeah. when that was. But. I don't know either. I, could, I was trying to think when it was, but yeah, I, don't, I can't remember either. <laughs> We're probably drunk or something. I don't know. <laughs> Can you edit that out? <laughs> no, but I, I did notice that about you, that you were, um, you know, a lot of people you, you meet at schools like tech that are very tech oriented are so rigid and so set. But uh, two things I, li- I really liked about you from the start one was you were not like that. You, you, you were not trying to fit any mold. You were trying to figure out what Paul liked and what Paul was good at. And the other thing was you had a great sense of humor. And I, I think, you know, if I, you just can't take yourself too seriously, you know, because right. other people will be laughing behind your back if they're not laughing <laughs> in your face. <laughs> yep. Well, life's hard enough, you know, and I think if you can enjoy things or break up some of the monotony with a little bit of humor, um then what's what's the point right so yeah well thank you that that means a lot for me dale i I really appreciate that um so the um so er seems to be kind of the path that that makes sense for you so do you wind up um just going into that 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 opportunity that was there and, and is that where you've you've been ever since um no i spent about seven years at that hospital and um yeah once again, kind of got itchy to do something just slightly different. So I, I went to a larger hospital in Albany and spent a few years there. And then I came to the hospital that I'm at now, which is actually all a part of the, the same system, the last two hospitals that I worked for. Um, but this is back at a community-based hospital in America's And uh, um, I really like that because they're <laughs> – there are a lot of specialists, and so sometimes there's nobody available that knows more about something a lot about. But sometimes, you know, you just dive into things, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and you just make the best of them. I mean, traumas are, are one example. You know, we do have have general surgeons, of course, available, and, and we get those those folks on board immediately in traumas. But, you know, sometimes when you're, you're waiting for that surgeon to get there or 
the surgeon's, you know, taking care of this bleeding artery, then I'm going to need to be the one to, to do this other thing that's critical where in a larger hospital, you know, you got this team of trauma docs coming in that sort of take it over. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of neat. I like being, I like being in that environment, even though it is kind of scary at times. It's, it's fun and you get to use all your skills, you know, on any given day, you get to use skills that may, you know, be a little dusty, I guess. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, Which it's great. Um, you know, I, I, so I've got to ask, right, because we're, this is 2020, the world's blown up. We've got this massive pandemic and you were sort of at the epicenter of what happened in South Georgia, right? So talk a little bit about how, um, you know, kind of the standard, ER procedures were kind of in place and then you had this massive influx of patients and other things going on. What was, what did you all have to do to shift to adjust for that? Well, yeah, we were, um, we were one of the earlier communities hit by uh, COVID-19. I think as the story goes, uh, there were a couple of very large funerals in our area and a patient from actually Cobb County in Atlanta came back uh, to one of the funerals, maybe both, and was already sick and already infected with this, what we now understand to be COVID-19, but I'm sure, you know, he didn't realize and, and nobody really knew at that time what that meant. And so from those two funerals, we just had an, a very early, very large outbreak in our community of um very sick patients, and unfortunately, a lot of those patients died. Um, for our hospital, we we were kind of braced ourselves for okay, this this looks like this is COVID, and you know we we don't have tests or all send out tests. They take five seven days, sometimes up to ten days at that time period. You know, before tests really got ramped up a little bit more, so. Um, so you had these frighteningly sick patients pouring into the ER, not a lot of PPE equipment, um, although our administration was relentless. Uh, they, they stayed after that and stayed on that so very hard. Um, so there was never a time when we didn't have the equipment. There was a time where we felt like if we don't get more in two days, we're not going to have any. And so that was scary. Um, We didn't know how this thing exactly was transmitted, and there's still a lot of questions about that. So you had doctors and nurses very frightened uh, about how to not only take care of very sick patients, but to protect themselves and each other. Um, We worried about the volume. However, the volume dropped to almost no patients unless they had COVID. and that was kind of a mixed blessing. I mean, from, from our perspective in the ER, that was a good thing because we, we wouldn't have been able to handle our regular volume plus the COVID volume. Mm-hmm. So the, the regular patients quit coming in, you know, and there's a huge downside to that because, you know, even heart attacks and stroke patients delayed their care and that, that's pretty awful for them. Um, you almost had to make a choice, right? Do I go the, to the in the heat of things? Yes, th- that I mean, they had been kind of discouraged from from coming to the hospital if it wasn't mm-hmm. you know something that they ha- absolutely had to come for, and, yeah. and then they were frightened. I mean, they, you know, there's sick people at the hospital. I don't want to go there, and you know, right. I'm, I'm just having a heart attack. I don't want to get COVID. You know, <laughs> that was sort of the, the mindset. So, um, Jeez, you know, terrible. in, in the frightening, yeah, yeah, it was really, really crazy time. It was late March, um, early April, I guess, uh, mm-hmm. when, when things were really flaring up for us. We, you know, didn't have enough ICU beds. Um, we found that patients, just everything you've read about in the media, yeah. you know, they come in looking, looking pretty good and within two hours they're on a ventilator i mean that's how quickly people decompensated um you know from the virus so so that was scary you know we 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 discharged patients home 
that we were certain had the virus, even though we wouldn't have the test for four or five days, and that we were certain would be back in two to three days, possibly needing to be on the ventilator. But we just had no capacity and, and nor did anyone around. And so you did this constant mental triage, you know, is this person going to be able to come back in time? Is this person going to have access to a video call with their doctor? You know, is this person, do they have the resources at home to care for themselves for a few days to determine whether they either start to get better or they totally crash and have to come back to the, to the hospital. So that was kind of the mindset at the time. Um, let's buy time, you know, maybe a ICU bed will open up in two days by the time this patient is going to be the next one to need that ICU bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just, I, I've never been in a situation like that before. I think, you know, of course it's a pandemic, not hardly anybody's ever been sure. in that kind of, uh, you know, situation, but sending people home who knowingly were not going to do well at home, that kind of goes against everything that you have been taught in medicine and everything you feel in your gut that, is the right thing to do. That goes against all of that. Mm-hmm. That had to be really tough. It's, uh, but you like to your point that mental triage, right? You you have to deal with limited resources, and you've got to make the best decision at the time to solve you know the the, the greater population challenge. So did you? Um, so how long did that whole um, I guess environment last? That was probably a couple months at least, right? Yeah, I I would say I would say about six weeks. We were we were really in that crunch environment. Our, our ER numbers dropped to almost nil. Our hospital was almost totally full at all times. Um, yeah, I would I would say probably about six weeks. Um, so how did so once the demand kind of lessened? Did were there things that that you had to modify just from, like you said, like before COVID, here's how things operated. After COVID, are there things that y'all had to adjust to, um, either from training or from, you know, just supply chain or um, rotations or any of that? I mean, I imagine this has probably permanently changed how the medical community um, operates. Is that a fair statement? Um, You know, everything from how how we protect ourselves, you know, how we wear the N95 mask with every single patient, you know, even the ones that come in for a, I don't know, a broken hand or something. Mm-hmm. We'll all have our N95 mask on. Um, um, where you might normally, you know, healthcare workers are the worst, you know, they'll come in puking and try to work and, you know, it's just not great. But, you know, where you where you might consider coming in when you're running a low-grade fever at home because you know it's probably sinusitis or a little virus or something, you know, that is totally shut down. And that I think everybody's been pretty conscientious about that. You just cannot come in now and, and think you're going to work with a fever. I mean, you just you, you just can't do that yeah. uh, for fear of spreading, you know, the virus. Um. So, you know, one, one thing that was interesting was to see how administration reacted to this. And one thing that they did that was impressive uh, was very early make these, you know, war rooms, basically, that had a lot of, a lot of different folks in them, you know, from the f- representatives of the cleaning staff to representatives from EMS to, you know, facilities planners and um, CEOs and chief nursing officers. It was just this whole mixture of, of different disciplines, different talent in the room. And, and they ran these, you know, every single day, all day, basically. You know, people would kind of come and go, but, and there was a hotline to threesome or if we needed other equipment or, or whatever, you know, they were, they were just right there uh, available to us. Um, and, and I really saw that things got done quickly uh, when you, when you brought it to your attention. So that was really nice. They also in the heat of things put a daily um, just sort of brief newsletter of where we stood hospital wide. 
and it went to everybody. I, I sit on the hospital ward right now, so it went to the board members, it went to the nurses, the physicians, the housekeepers, it went to everybody in the hospital. So on any given day, you would have a really good feeling for what was going on with COVID in the hospital. And that seems like a simple thing, but, but it's helpful, you know? Yeah. Well, it probably was reassuring just to hear that, you know, people weren't hiding behind a decision or um, keeping you in the dark. There's a lot to be said for transparency that turns into trust these days with the amount of information we can get on the internet. Um, you know, you, you have to get in front of that, I think. So that was really smart on, on that team to really do that. Yeah. Yeah. It was very reassuring. Even when you saw the numbers go up, you know, that was okay too, because you felt like you, you just you were in loop and you knew you knew what you had to expect the next couple of days so that was that was very helpful definitely good crisis management you know i was thinking that the whole time <laughs> wow well dale I, I can't thank you enough i know that that had to be just one of the most stressful things that you've ever been to and has been through and is a kind of a, a public servant if you will to sort of help you know treat a lot of those patients not knowing you know what you're dealing with with some of the time i just I can't imagine, but I, I just want to thank you on behalf of you know, the general public that you, you were there to do that and um, that your team, you know, all did you know, the best that they can. And, you know, it was really uh, a challenge. I think that, you know, for I'm just going to turn this over to you and just say, you know, for this audience, I mean, what's what are some strategies that we can do to sort of help get through this? I know that this has become politicized and there's, you know, all of these other factors that play into it. But um, it, se it seems like there could be some just general basic things that we can do um, as a society to help, you know, reduce or, or eliminate this. So what would you, what would you advise? I think one of the big things is to, you know, just to keep a kind and a, a thoughtful attitude um, about the whole process. I mean, I think there are a lot of people out there trying to do the best they can to, take care of themselves and take care of others with with limitations that sometimes we don't even understand in terms of resources. There, there are people that live in very large households that can't really physically distance themselves. There are a lot of elderly people that are really vulnerable. And so I, I think we have to be thoughtful of the people around us when we make the decision not to wear a mask, that it's, it's not really just us we're affecting. You know, it's the, the people that whose story we don't know. We don't, we don't know what they're dealing with. They may have cancer. Their kids may have cancer. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think that's one big thing. Um, I, I'm just kind of, my, my bend, and this is my bias for sure, is, is to, to trust scientists. I mean, I, I think that if we start joining the flat earth crowd, I, I think that's a worrisome uh, a problem. Mm -hmm. I, I think you, you have to seek out the latest trusted scientific information and, and you kind of have to go with that, you know? Yeah. Um, it shouldn't be politicized in my mind. It, you, we, we should be reaching out to the experts and, and getting that advice and not, not harassing them when, when yesterday's advice doesn't apply two weeks later because we're all learning, you know, nobody knows a whole lot about this uh, virus. So yeah. they're using their best judgment. And I think we have to be supportive of the scientists and, and take them very seriously in their recommendations. Yeah. And it shouldn't be, you know, thought of any differently than say, you know, putting a man on the moon, right? That's something that no one had yeah. done before. These pandemics, we've never been through something like this. And so when the first rocket blows up or, you know, you're treating something that all of a sudden you realize is not effective and you, you have to switch, shouldn't be a reason to sort of completely close down the program to say, you know, you're wrong and you have no idea what you're talking about. So it's, I, I totally agree with you around trusting experts. You know, I think somebody that, you know, is scrolling through a Facebook wall, I don't consider them an expert. Um, versus somebody who spent <laughs> 10 or 20 years in medicine studying and has been, you know, working with patients for decades and has real world experience with, you know, how to deal with some of the, the, the craziness that, you know, bacteria infections and viruses can, can do. So, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. And, you know, we're all in this together. It doesn't matter what party or what, what color hat you wear, you know, the virus doesn't care. And, um, you know, I think it's, I think it'd be really amazing for us to sort of get past that and just figure out how we sort of get 
band together to solve this so that folks like yourself can go back to treating the folks that are, you know, dealing with heart attacks and strokes and other things that really require medical attention. Yeah, I, I, I think so too, Paul. I mean, we've, we've got to get to that point somehow, uh, you know, together. Yeah, I mean, for sure. The only, and this is not even a good parallel, but the only parallel that I really have in my lifetime of, you know, the part that I've practiced medicine is kind of the, the similar sort of stigma around HIV when that was, you know, mm -hmm. first being brought to the forefront. You know, I think there was just a lot of negativity surrounding that and in politics played a role in that. I, you know, I just, I feel like medicine is medicine and, and people are people and, you know, we need, we need the best treatments available and we need them accessible to everyone. Um, yeah. and, but that's just my bin. And I, I think we stay positive and we, and we try to do the best for, for everybody really. Yeah. Well, again, I, I can't thank you enough. I think it's amazing what you've, you've done in the medical community and with your, um, your own professional, you know, practice. So, um, just really appreciate all you're doing. So, uh, last nice. thing. Yeah, it's, it's been great kind of catching up with you because I really haven't talked to you much since this whole thing blew up this year. So it's really been interesting to kind of hear your story this year. So last thing I want to ask you is just um, if you could go back in time, what would you, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, wow. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's such a good question. I, you know, I think just what we talked about earlier, be open to, to opportunities that blindside you. Um, don't assume you have to figure things out and have everything in place before you take that next step or take that next job or, or, you know, move to a new city. I, I think just, you know, always be open to, to new situations and put yourself in a position to be ready when opportunities come along. Um, I think at times I was too worried about the, the details when maybe I should have been looking at the bigger picture of you know what what are my talents and and what are my interests and and how can those two areas overlap and and that's probably the sweet spot um and i think er everybody's talents are different and everybody's interests are different so you, you have to kind of you know do some serious honest soul searching to to figure out you know what the right fit is but but you also have to be very open to to things you didn't even know were opportunities i guess yeah yeah, I think that comes with wisdom too, is to kind of recognize when those opportunities come up and and then, you know, either work beyond the fear or the vision to say, you know what, I'm going to try this. Let's see how it works out. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Dale, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, it's been great to hear your experiences. And I think these, um, these life pivots have been uh, really inspirational for a lot of folks. So thanks again for your time. Thanks, Paul. Good to catch up. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.